0: Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Mark as we continue making our way? This morning we'll be considering the portion of Scripture in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And he said to them, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Do you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord for his help as we consider his word. Father, we recognize not only our great need, but your great faithfulness to produce the fruit from your word in our lives that we so desperately need. Lord, we recognize the myriad of distractions. We recognize even the proneness of our hearts to be dull, to be slow to hearing, even given the fact that you compel us, encourage to listen and pay attention. Lord, we come In our need, asking for your grace, asking for the ministry of your Spirit to help. For Lord, apart from your aid, apart from your work in our lives, your word will not bear fruit. But Lord, because of your Spirit, because of your grace, because of the effectiveness of your good seed and your gracious purpose, Lord, we know you will accomplish this fruit. So would you be faithful to your promise? Would you be faithful to the working of the ministry of your spirit to cause your word to bring forth your purposes in our lives as your people, we pray. Do this, Lord, that Christ might be seen as glorious, that he might be lifted up and the manifold mystery of of your grace in our lives would be displayed to the watching world. Do this, By your good pleasure, for his sake we pray. Amen. As we read our Bibles, it's helpful to see that there are these particular themes that run throughout its pages. There are these narratives, there are these gospel accounts, there are these instructions given to us within the epistles. And there are are certain themes or images that we find that, that really run consistently through all of that. And one of the persistent themes in the scriptures is the necessity of God's people to have patience. Now, the patience that I have in mind here is much more than the patience required to wait in line or wait behind that person that doesn't see that it's a green light or the particular slowness of other people. The patience that I'm speaking of here is the patience needed for lifelong endurance, and it only comes by having our eyes fixed upon the greatness of the horizon of the coming kingdom, fixed upon what Christ himself describes here in his word. The Bible's very clear that Christ not only has come, but that he's coming again. And when he comes again, he will judge the living and the dead. He will put an end to all sin and unrighteousness and usher in this kingdom of righteousness that will be without end for all eternity. This has been the hope of Christians for generations, and we anticipate this coming kingdom until he returns. Now, keeping that in mind, rewind a bit. Rewind 2,000 years ago, the message of this kingdom is being sown. It's being proclaimed in Jesus' teaching. It's being anticipated throughout these miraculous healings that testify of the sort of kingdom that's broken in. But as wonderful as that kingdom sounds, if you were there, you'd have to admit that it would appear to be a rather grassroots, small-town, obscure kind of movement. After all, who are the key players? Well, at this point, we have this Jesus, a Galilean carpenter with no formal religious background, surrounded by 12 other characters made up of a few fishermen, tax collector, political zealots, and otherwise nobodies. And if you're a follower of Jesus, or just simply you know, listening, an observer in the crowd, it would be very reasonable at this point to begin to ask, how confident should I be in this kingdom that he's talking about? I mean, after all, it doesn't seem like it's very well funded. It's uh, not really backed by any sufficient power group. It's not even strategically located in a central location. We are in rural Galilee, not to mention we have this swarm of scribes and Pharisees who have just devoted themselves to destroy this Jesus. They seem pretty powerful, How confident can I be in this kingdom? How sure can I be that what I hear this Jesus teaching will actually come to fruition? Well, it's for this reason that Jesus continues teaching in parables and includes these specific parables here in Mark chapter 4. As he continues to teach on the kingdom of God, he is taking time to remind us of how we are to respond to the message of this kingdom, And how then we can most certainly rest in the mystery of this kingdom. And those are the two themes that I want to move forward in this morning, considering these four parables. That we can, how we can respond to the message of this kingdom and how we can rest in the actual mystery of this kingdom. Let's look back at our Bibles, considering verse 21, where Jesus begins to teach how we ought to respond to the message of the kingdom. As you look at your Bibles, you'll be helped to notice Mark's divisions of this phrase in verse 21 and verse 24 that says, and he said to them. He does this not only to distinguish them as two related but distinct sayings, but also, I believe that it parallels the, and he said to them, back in chapter 4, verse 11. Look back at your Bibles and see in 4.11, we see this distinction in he said to them, and then verse 21, and he said to them, and then in verse 24, and he said to them. Meaning, verses 21 and following and verses 24 and following are given to the same group of interested listeners who press forward to Jesus and say, what does this mean? Why are you teaching in parables and what does this parable mean? So what we can then be clued into is that these parables in verses 21 through 25 are essentially further application of what he's been telling his disciples from verse 11. It's further insider explanation. To you, it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to explain the parable of the sower. Continuing in that same vein, in those same listeners saying, he said to them, and he said to them. So we can read and understand verses 21 through 25 as further application and explanation for those who have ears to hear. Specifically, How ought we respond to the message of the kingdom? He's just told them, to you it's been given insight into the mystery of the kingdom. Okay, what do we do with that? Well, first, we respond by showing and telling. We respond to the message of the kingdom by showing and telling. Verses 21 through 23, he said to them, is a lamp brought into brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, keep in mind the helpful bit of context in verse 11, that the disciples are the ones to whom it's been given the secret of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, they may be rejecting this Jesus, but the disciples, they see him as he is, the Christ, the Son of God. So the mystery of the kingdom of God is that it's hidden in the person and ministry of Christ. The disciples have heard, they've accepted this word, the seed is growing, it's beginning to bear fruit, and what are they to do with this knowledge? Well, lamps are meant to shine. Don't Keep this knowledge to yourself. Don't hide it away. Rather, put it on a stand, maximize this illumination so that it might give more light, so that it might be known even further. Secondly, what he tells them, is that hidden secrets are meant to be revealed. Now we understand this. Think about it. There are certain moments in life that are so good, they are so celebratory, That this secret has to be told. Something that is hidden, it has to be brought out into the light. Why else do we wrap presents? They're hidden, but only to reveal them. Because it's so good, I got you this. And it's not just, you know, you hand it to them. It's like, I've wrapped this up and I'm bringing it to you. It's been hidden for the purpose of being revealed. Or think about it this way. Why else do you hide at a surprise party. Not to secretly live there in their closet, but at some point so that you can jump out and say, surprise, we're so glad it's your birthday, we are here. What has been hidden is meant to be revealed. So how do we, as God's people, respond to the message of the kingdom of God? The mystery of our redemption, the story of our rescue It's unfolded, and we are the insiders to the greatest plot twist ever written. The Holy One has come to rescue sinners by ransoming them by his own blood. The shepherd comes to gather his sheep by laying down his own life for the sheep. The dragon is killed. The people are saved. The victor is king. And what do we do with that? Well, for one, we shine by caring about God's word. We shine by caring about God's word. Rather than putting this light, the reality of who Jesus is and what he has come to do, rather than putting this light away, we actually seek to maximize its placement so that all might see. So that more might be illuminated by the reality of this story. How much do we read of this in the Psalms where we're exhorted to testify, to glory, to speak, to sing, to tell? It's our reminder as God's people that a part of what we're doing, not only throughout our weeks, but as we gather, we are testifying to the nations of who this God is. And we are testifying even to the spiritual realm of the mystery of God's grace as he redeems his elect from every tribe, tongue, and people. Listen to 1 Chronicles 16, verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name and make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises of him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. We shine the light by caring about God's word. And one of the ways that we can work to put the light on the lampstand, as it were, seeking to illuminate the lives of others, is not only by what we speak and the opportunities that we have to share and to testify, but also as God's people, we can seek to put the lamp on the lampstand, by ensuring that God's people have a copy of God's word. Sometimes we get so far down the road, we forget the essentials. We are tremendously privileged, and that we have multiple copies of God's word. We have multiple bound copies, digital copies. Did you know that in the world, there are 7,000 languages 7,000 languages. And did you know that of those 7,000 languages, do you know how many have a complete copy of God's word this morning? 700. About 10% of the world's languages actually have a copy of God's word. And we are so privileged and so well-blessed that we are not even thinking of, do I have a copy, but which copy should I bring this morning? Which app should I open? Which leather-bound goat-skin copy should I pull out today? We are a blessed people, and yet we live in a world where there is actually a famine of God's word. So brothers and sisters, one of the ways that we can care about illuminating and putting the lamp on the lampstand is praying for, and even when possible, working for, the translation of God's word into the languages where God's people are gathering Did you know that as as a church that confesses the Second London Baptist and even those that hold to the Westminster, this idea of Bible translation is baked right into what we believe the Bible teaches? Let me remind you of this. It's in chapter 1 of our Confession, paragraph 8. All God's people have a right and a claim on the Scriptures and are commanded to fear God to read and search them. Not all of God's people know these Original languages, meaning the Greek and the Hebrew. So the scriptures are to be translated into the common language of every nation to which they come. In this way, the word of God may dwell richly in all so that they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and the comfort of the scriptures may have hope. That God's word would be translated into the common language of every tongue. Church, one of the ways that we can seek to have the lamp put upon the lampstand is to pray and to work for this ministry of Bible translation. But not only do we do that by caring about God's word, we respond by simply shining the light through our gospel witness. We seek to adorn the gospel, as Paul would say, by the way we live our lives. And by the way we live our lives, I mean the way that we love our spouses, The way that we raise our children. Children, the way that we seek to honor our parents. The way that we love our neighbor. The way that we seek to live in the particular region that God has planted us. And all of this stems from our diligence to hold fast to the word of life. Because as we hold fast to the word of life, as Paul would write to the Philippians, he says, you shine as lights in a darkened world, holding fast to the word of life. See, one way that we actually provide a witness is by seeking to have our lives ordered by the word of God, holding fast, and when we do that, we stand as a distinct testimony. We shine as a faithful light. Don't underestimate the impact and the presence of a gospel-ordered life in the midst of a dark world. That whole game of one of these things doesn't belong here. One of these things, it's kind of the same, but one of these things, it's doing its own thing. As a culture is enveloped in darkness, the simple faithfulness of a Christian who seeks to have their life ordered by the word of life stands out. What did Christ teach us to pray? That through that, that we might shine as lights in the world, that we might bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. Seeking to order your life according to God's word is not just a moral, legalistic attempt to be squeaky clean. It is a response to who God is, but it is an evangelical witness in the place that God has had us. So that's one way that we respond to God's word. But We respond not only to this message simply by showing and telling. He goes on in verse 24. He says that we should respond with all diligence. We should respond with all diligence. Look at verse 24. He said to them, pay attention. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken. I think the emphasis here is the need to respond with attention. A sort of mindfulness that we give to our response. I think this is in contrast to those who see but refuse to perceive, back in verse 12, those who hear, But refuse to understand, Christ says, You pay attention to what you hear. There is an immediate response, and there is a future reward. And what he says here, the measure that you use will pay dividends or cost you greatly. Pay attention to how you hear, and the measure that you used, it will reap exponential dividends, or cost you greatly. I remember at my grandparents' breakfast table, there was a cross-stitch wall hanging right above the table that just said, if mom says no, ask grandma. (laughs) I'm sure every mother loved to read that. But it was fitting, because as grandkids, you learned fairly early that not everyone uses the same measure. If you're going to ask for ice cream, ask grandma. You learn that not everyone uses the same measure. Pay attention to the measure you use, Jesus says. Use big scoops. Dip in. Because the one who hears and accepts Christ's teaching will receive from him not only now the immediate benefits, but eternally will reap an exponential reward. And the one who rejects, the one who is stingy, will not only lose out now, but they will lose out for all eternity hearing and the receiving of truth is the primary means by which we grow in grace hearing and receiving the truth of god's word is the primary means by which you will grow spiritually just just remind ourselves of this the means by which we come to faith romans 10:17 faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god or paul would write to the ephesians In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The word of truth is the means by which we come to faith, but the word of truth is the means in which we grow in our faith as well. We could remind ourselves of Colossians 3, verse 16, where Paul exhorts us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he gives us instructions for what we actually do when we gather, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What measure are you using? If this is true, what sort of scoop are you digging in with? Is it any wonder that we find our faith to be weak, our souls malnourished, easily discouraged, even ruled by our insecurities, our impure thoughts, feeling dry, tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine? What measure are you using? For when we give our attention to God's word, dipping in with great heaping measures, we find this God to be exponentially gracious in return. Think about it. He not only gives of his riches, but according to the riches of his grace. He gives grace upon grace. He not only pardons, But Isaiah says he pardons abundantly. He not only bestows mercy, Micah says he delights in mercy. And when he gives, what does he give? He gives his only begotten son. Go in, draw deep into the riches of Christ and find out if this is not so. What measure are you using? Do you long to grow in grace, Christian? Do you desire stronger faith, brighter hope, clearer knowledge? I know you do, because this is the desire of God's people. Then, church, let us hear with all diligence what measure we use to care for our souls upon the hearing of God's word will reap exponential fruit, And the more that you and I do for our souls, the more we shall find that Christ does abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think. So he says there is a certain response that we must have to the message of this kingdom. Let's spend the remainder of our time considering how we are told to rest in the mystery of this kingdom. Jesus, again, in these final two parables, picks up the image of the seed, as he's done, and he seeks to further clarify the nature of the kingdom of God through these images or these parables, emphasizing one theme, the mysterious aspect of the kingdom of God. And because of this mystery, here's what he says. We need to be patient in the process, and we must be confident in the result. Look at what he says about being patient in the process. This is verse 26. The way that Jesus sets this out, the contrast between the man and the seed. Verse 27, it says, He, the man, sows the seed, but then he sleeps and rises night and day. The seed, on the other hand, sprouts and grows, while the man is rising and sleeping, but he knows not how. And then verse 28 The contrast is pressed further. The earth produces by itself, apart from the man, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. And then, verse 29, then comes the harvest, and the man returns, and he puts his sickle to the crop. What this means is that the man faithfully sows the seed and labors to bring about the harvest, but during this mysterious process of growth, he waits, He goes to bed, he rises, he goes to bed, he rises. There is an element that he cannot see, the seed is below the earth, there's an element that he cannot control, for now he must wait in faith and in hope, waiting for the harvest, that's when he comes back. Now, this is one of the many reminders that kingdom work is patient work. At first, there may be little to show for your diligent efforts. Kingdom work is patient work. Imagine in this parable, this story, walking by this man's field each day. As he was preparing the earth, tilling it up sweating, pulling out rocks and weeds, plowing in preparation. And you walk by each day, seeing him diligent. And then you see him one day broadcasting the seed. And as you continue to walk by, you see nothing. You see an empty field. It looks like the farmer is doing absolutely nothing. And many days, this looks just like an abandoned lot, an empty field, a patch of dirt, It looks like there is nothing happening here. But then, what do you notice? A tiny blade shoots up, and then the ear, and then the full grain. And perhaps a casual observer of your own life might come to the same conclusion as this man in the field. You faithfully shared the gospel with your co-workers, but no response. You faithfully sought to lead family worship, reading and praying, but seemingly no fruit. You study, you prepare, diligently teaching a Bible study for years, but it looks like an empty field. This is just a barren patch of dirt. Pastors, missionaries give themselves to decades of faithful sowing of God's word, sleeping and rising, but seeing no fruit. But Christ would have us to know that our immediate perception of that situation is often wrong. There is a mystery to kingdom growth. It's often hidden and patience is required. It often looks like nothing is happening. But the confidence that we have is that God's seed is good seed. And his purposes will be accomplished. You may know of William Carey and his story. In 1793, William Carey and his family left England to sail for India in hopes of bringing the gospel to that nation. One of the great pioneers, again, of Bible translation. Within months, they were plagued with sickness if you read his biography, eventually the death of children and family, a devastating fire sweeps in and burns up all of his labors, his translation work, his manuscripts, his books. And what you find is that Carey labored for not one year, not two years, not five years, but seven years before he saw his first convert. Not his first church. Not his first Resending of another missionary, his first convert. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Church, can I remind you, oftentimes as God's people We will have to make decisions, sometimes even hard decisions that are in line with God's word, reflective of godly wisdom. And sometimes these decisions will require trust and even sacrifice. And in those godly, Christ-exalting, sacrificial decisions that honor the Lord, it is quite common to see no immediate results or fruit. And it can be very discouraging to say, Lord, I've done the right thing. I've tried to walk in a way that honors you. I don't see any results. I don't see any fruit. I don't see what I expected to see. You go to sleep, you rise. You go to sleep, you rise. The exhortation of God's word is to be patient. And we must be so careful in assuming that these seasons of apparent inactivity are seasons of waste or deadness. Despite appearances, the seed that God plants is growing. God's seed results in a harvest. This is something very mysterious something that we cannot explain, something that transcends our logic, our expectations, and often our timetable. Not by human effort, not by striving, often contrary to earthly wisdom and cultural expectations, God grows his seed. So, we respond in patience, but we also respond by being confident in the result Patient in waiting, but confident in the result. Look at the last parable as we end here in verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It's like the grain of mustard seed, which is sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Keep in mind, much of what Jesus was teaching on the kingdom of God was to actually deconstruct certain misconceptions about what he'd come to do. Many of his hearers would have read the Old Testament. They would have known that the redemption that God was going to bring was going to cover the whole earth. Many of his hearers would have expected that the kingdom of God would be big, that it would Cover all of creation, because there's many passages in the prophets this, that anticipate the whole earth coming under the reign of this king. And because of this, many people read their scriptures and expected that the Messiah's coming would be big, it'd be dramatic, it would be immediate, that it would be loud and absolutely complete. And it's within that context that Jesus tells this parable. What can we learn from this? Two observations. One, we should not expect the kingdom of God to begin as it will end. Here's what I mean. This seed, Jesus says, is the smallest of all the seeds, but it becomes the largest of all the garden plants. It becomes a large tree in comparison to the tiny seed, large enough that birds of the air can nest and make branches there. Now, this language is reminiscent of many Old Testament scriptures that speak of other great kingdoms that cast their shadow on the earth. But if the greatness of the kingdom is in view here, Jesus, why a mustard plant? Why a mustard plant? Why a mustard seed? Remember, no faithful Jew doubted that the kingdom would come and that the kingdom would be vast, that it would be glorious, that it would be complete. What Jesus is teaching here, it actually goes beyond that. He's saying that there's an intended connection between the small beginning that take place under his ministry and the kingdom that's going to come in future glory. Through this initial appearance of his kingdom right here, it, it might seem on. Un- It might seem inconsequential. A couple of guys traveling around in the dusty roads of rural Galilee. That looks like a mustard seed. I'm going to be honest. I don't have much confidence in this moving beyond, say, Jerusalem. And yet Jesus said, it's like a mustard seed. Therefore, the shock was not that the kingdom would be great, but that it would begin so insignificantly. It did not begin as they would expect. We should not expect the kingdom of God to begin as it will end. And secondly, we should not despise then the day of small things, constantly looking for these great things. Consider the point. The change and the charge is being led by rural Galilean carpenter fishermen, followed by tax collectors, political zealots, a handful of other blue-collar, should we say, nobodies. And they chose to spend most of their time not in the powerful, influential region of Jerusalem, but the majority of the ministry is spent in the small towns of rural northern Israel. And stranger yet, this kingdom is inaugurated with a Messiah hanging on a cross. How many innumerable ways Does God's kingdom seed break into our lives in seemingly inconsequential and almost ways that we can overlook? Lest we forget, the kingdom of God comes quietly, seemingly small, and insignificant. It does not come with flash and with bravado, with a sword and a club, but in Jesus' imagery, it comes with a seed, a mustard seed. And how many innumerable ways does God's seed break into our daily lives in this small and what we would say that was just pretty much insignificant? How about the opportunity to explain the goodness of God and salvation to our kids as we just drive from soccer practice to home? A small five-minute conversation just to plant the small seed of how good God is seems pretty insignificant. Kind of sounds like a mustard seed. How about the chance meeting that you have with someone around town and you run into at the coffee shop that you haven't seen and you have the opportunity to just pray for them in passing? No idea what will come of that. Took all of two minutes, pretty insignificant. Sounds kind of like a mustard seed. How about the times that you share on a friend's couch as you talk through your recent struggles and doubts? You pray, you go home, life looks pretty much the same as you left it. Pretty insignificant. What did we actually just do there? Well, that sounds a lot like a mustard seed. Church, these are the moments we live for. They look so tiny. They look so insignificant like seeds, but by God's good design, they are so much more. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised when the kingdom of God continues to unfold in a similar way today. Think of your own testimony. It may seem rather plain, rather insignificant, rather ordinary, but regardless of the particular details, how does the testimony of every believer end? It ends with you standing before the presence of the triune God in your resurrected body, enjoying your creator with all the saints for all eternity. It does not end as it began. Think about church growth. Globally, where is the church growing? Oftentimes, among the poorest, most persecuted, least influential regions on this planet. And yet, the kingdom seed is growing. The kingdom of God, church, it comes quietly, small, almost unnoticeable. But in the end, it will cover the earth in all of its glory. And so as followers of Jesus, what do we do with this? We are reminded to be patient until the end. For Christ is will most certainly have his bride. She will be gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation. The whole earth will be represented in in spotless glory. This is the story of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's seemingly insignificant, but it's ultimately altogether unlike its humble beginning. It's the mystery of Genesis to Revelation. Think about it. It's the very pattern of the story of redemption. God creates the whole world and he calls it good. But Adam sins, he plunges all of creation into this curse and every sphere of life is now marred and corrupted by the brokenness of sin. And God promises the story doesn't end here. It will keep going. He would send a rescuer. And how did God do that? God took one man, Abraham, and he made a nation. God took that little nation and he made it the least of all nations. And when this, this nation was occupied by the greatest nation, Rome, a child was born, a baby. And this child was God in the flesh. And he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even on the death of the cross. And though his death And through his death and through his resurrection, God would then redeem all his people throughout the earth from the curse of sin and save his people and establish his name to be glorious because of what he has done. Seed, small seed, inconsequential, almost something you would overlook. And yet it is God's means to redeem his people. So do you see the great contrast of this kingdom. Can I encourage you that it often begins obscure, hidden, insignificant, often just seemingly as really nothing of any consequence. It does not come with great fanfare and pomp and brilliance, but in the end, what are we assured of? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Church, these parables are meant to remind us that the kingdom of God, it it does not come as we might expect. It does not always work the way that we would think, but it will result in far more than we could ever imagine. So let us be found as those who are patient in our work, those who are laboring on in faith, those sort of people who are trusting in the good seed of the kingdom, that will bear the fruit God intends. Father, we ask that you would continue to be faithful to your word. Lord, this seed that we have heard and even this seed that we have had just sowed among us, Lord, would you cause that seed to bear the good fruit that we long for? And Father, we ask especially as your people that you would give us patient endurance with all joy, that in the midst of whatever circumstance or season you have ordained for us, help us to see the goodness of patiently waiting. Help us to wait in such a way that our eyes are fixed, not on ourselves or on our circumstances, but that our eyes are fixed upon you, the one who will bring about your purposes in your time. Help us to keep our minds fixed upon the reality that your purposes for your people are always good, that you are always dealing out to us goodness and mercy, that you always work in justice, that none of us can say this is unfair, but all of us will ultimately be able to say you have given us far more than we could have ever have deserved. Lord, help us to dip in with big scoops, with great measures, Cause your word to bear tremendous fruit, not only now, but Lord, we anticipate the day when we will stand before your throne and be in awe of the greatness of how you exponentially give beyond what we could ask or think. Lord, continue to bring in your people, continue to send out your laborers, continue to cause your seed to be sown, to be cast, to be planted in faith, and to be harvested with great joy, we pray. Amen. Beloved, as we look to the table spread before us this morning, it is a testimony to the faithful working of the good seed of God's word. His word is effectual. By his word and by his spirit, the fruit of the gospel has been born into our lives as his people. That is what this speaks to us. Let me remind us of the promise in Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Our Father, our Shepherd, our King, the faithful one sows his seed and causes his seed to bear fruit, even in the most hardened of hearts. That is what we testify this morning. And so as we take up the bread and the cup, we are reminded, we're reminded afresh this morning of the faithfulness of God. And as we're reminded, we're doing two things. We're, we're looking backwards and we're looking forwards at the same time. Did you know that? When you hold these elements, you are looking backwards and forwards. You are looking backwards, remembering the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ that is the assurance of our faith and the nourishment of our souls. But at the same time, we're anticipating. We're looking ahead, anticipating the day when Christ will return, establish his kingdom of righteousness that will be without end, and we will feast again as God's people. The good seed of the kingdom will triumph in the end. Sins are forgiven, righteousness will reign, and his people stand as this testimony of his grace. And that's why we say this meal, it's a bond and it's a pledge that we are participants with the Lord and with one another. So if you've been brought into membership of this church or another church that preaches the same gospel, you've been baptized upon your profession of faith, This meal is for you. And if that's not true of you, or if you're unsure if you should join in eating and drinking, we would ask that you let these elements pass before you this morning. Consider the wonderful promise of God's word and the mystery that's given to us. And if you have any questions about what that would mean or how we seek to follow Jesus here, please see myself or one of the other pastors after the service. Be delighted to talk to you further.